to another episode of Trans Regrets Newbie Presents the Bible. I am alone today um, discussing a passage that I think is uh, really important and has been um, understood and misunderstood in different ways over the course of, um, over the course of history. And uh, it, it's one that is carrying a lot of weight for me at this present moment. And so I thought it would be nice to sit down alone in, uh, you know, in the dark, got a little candle lit here. And uh, I want to discuss Ecclesiastes 3. Now, the, um, the background for Ecclesiastes is kind of interesting because it was a book that for a long time was credited to Solomon. Uh, it's basically a similar style of wisdom literature as other passages that Solomon is credited. Um, but he uh, did not actually write this, or, or most people seem to think that it's virtually impossible that he did because of the style of language that's used in the writing for the, um, the earliest uh, transcripts that they have. Um, the name of the book actually comes from who folks generally credit this book to, which is the name Koheleth. Um, the NRSV has a, a pretty good breakdown of why the book is named what it is and who this person might have been. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this before I um, jump in to the passage. Uh, the name of the book and ultimately of the author derives from the Hebrew Koheleth. In Hebrew, the root kol has to do with an assembly or congregation, an ecclesia, hence the Greek and Latin form Ecclesiastes. The name then would seem to mean leader of an assembly. The term preacher, which you'll see in a lot of translations, uh, the term preacher goes back through Luther to Jerome, but the author is not a preacher, nor is this a series of sermons. The editor of this book, perhaps one of the author's students, is responsible for the superscription that identifies him as son of David, and hence the work was attributed to Solomon. But the late language and the tenor of the work make this attribution virtually impossible. A date around 300 BC is likely. So uh, we know that a lot of the writing in the Bible is attributed to folks that probably didn't write that book. Um, oftentimes, passages, uh, chapters, uh, books of the Bible are named after the subject or who is supposed to be uh, relaying this story, not who actually put pen to paper to write this particular book. Now, Ecclesiastes has a really interesting scope of thought. Because the initial uh, concept of the book is one that's kind of hopeless feeling. But the author talks about uh, all the things that he's accomplished and all the things that he's done and how ultimately the things that come out of that are useless. Um, the rewards of themselves in this world accomplish nothing for us. Um, while they may provide us degrees of comfort and certain... Uh, accolades, uh, pride, respect, they don't really accomplish anything for us. So, of course, it's easy for him to say, right? Everyone that's rich loves to say that money doesn't solve everything. 
Uh, and we know, obviously, it solves a lot of things in this world that we're living in. But all the same, this notion of a world only under the sun, a world without the hope of an afterlife, does present an interesting conundrum because then that pesky question of why bother keeps coming up. What is the purpose? What is the meaning? Why bother? In the midst of all of this more grand philosophical discussion, uh, existential discussion, there is a passage in uh, chapter three that has been uh, co-opted, was co-opted, I should say, in the 1960s by the birds who uh, had a song that they played called Turn, Turn, Turn. I don't believe they actually wrote that song, but this song borrows almost the entire text of the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3 and mentions um, mentions all these passages in a way that kind of makes it sound groovy and almost kind of Buddhist, um, Eastern, all of these notions, a time to, to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a, a time to cast away. And it's sort of presented in this way that makes it seem like everything's groovy. Um, it's, uh, it's all, we're all one, we're all the same and we all experience these things and we go through this river of life and isn't it, and isn't it melancholy at times and isn't it beautiful at times. And, and, um, and while I agree with that message on its face, I don't really think that that's the intent that the author had in writing this. I think that to me, and, um, again, I picked this passage because it was, feeling particularly relevant to things going on in my life right now. But to me, it speaks to a sort of helplessness to change the the goings-on of our lives. There are certain baked-in aspects of how we exist in this world that we can never really shake. We cannot control when we're born. We cannot control when we die. We cannot control when we break down. We cannot control when we weep or when we laugh. We can try to, but it's very difficult. So I want to dive into the text here and and try to talk a little bit about um, where I see the sort of different tensions going on. And um, so uh, the the header in the ESV, which I'm going to use for, for this reading, is a time for everything. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, this is just a beautiful poem, right? It is so beautifully written, and and I love the cadence of it, And it actually occasionally rhymes, which is uh, rare for um, biblical poetics. Uh, And um, I'm a sucker for like meter and rhyme because of, uh, you know, how much I love music. So, so this obviously really, really speaks to me. 
I think that if we rewind to the very beginning, we start to see the gravity of what the author is bringing up here. To be born and to die, to plant and to pluck up what is planted, which is a birth and a death, and a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. So in this world, in this life that we're leading, the certainty of tragedy is looming in front of us at all times. And I think some people do a really, really good job of putting that, putting that away. Um, and, and that's, I think, what this is arguing for, in a way, to say that you will experience these things that likely won't always feel very good. You will laugh, but as much as you laugh, you will cry. You are born, and as much as you are born, you will die. You will love, and as much as you love, you will hate. So this is not, um, to me, necessarily to say, okay, then I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air, let it all happen to me, let it roll over me, and everything is hopeless anyway. Though I think that there might be a larger message in this book to kind of say, if we're going to consider the world as just this world, then it kind of is hopeless. But obviously, we're reading the Bible here. So that's not how I consider this world. That's not how the Bible argues that you should consider this world. This is a training ground. You know, this is preparation. We are not spending eternity here. We're spending a very intense, particular set of years of our lives here. But there will be a life beyond this life. And that life is where we will not have to cast away stones or gather stones together. That life is not one where we will have to have war and peace. I like a lot the, the imagery of a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. This notion of self-control is an interesting one because they don't really bring up this refraining very much. In, in this particular passage, it's all sort of involuntary, right? Um, we're mourning and we're dancing, we're weeping and we're laughing, we're being born and we're dying, seeking and losing. Not a lot of this has to do with self-control, but in this particular section of uh, three five, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I wonder sometimes what the Bible thinks of physical affection because of the way that the sort of sexual moral code has been interpreted by the modern church. I wonder if this passage hasn't been misused in some way to say, well, see, you can do it sometimes, but you don't want to do it all the time. Um, I want to know what in the author's mind was the, um, the time to refrain from embracing. At what time does it seem like the better move to not have someone close to you? It's a, it's a difficult notion to even bring up because it's so abstract. But I do, I do think it's like so fascinating to me. I'm going to jump into the, the voice translation here. And I think we'll be surprised by how similar their translation is of this particular passage. And as I've said before, the really, really important passages in the Bible stay pretty similar. Um, the NRSV, the ESV, the NIV, and the voice are all virtually identical. 
although um, the voice takes a few turns of phrase that I think modernize the language a little bit. I'm just going to read this sections, uh, um, verses two through eight, just to get an idea of what what they're trying to say with this translation. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to collect the harvest, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to pile them up, a time for a warm embrace, a time for keeping your distance, a time to search, a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, a time to throw out, a time to tear apart, a time to bind together, a time to be quiet, a time to speak up, a time to love, a time to hate, a time to go to war, a time to make peace. So obviously the message is is very similar here. The use of a, a time for a warm embrace was interesting because that's the passage that I was fixating on before too. What embrace I suppose isn't warm, but I, I don't know why that language was necessary to add in there. The, um, the voice usually does a really good job of um, summarizing bits of the, the Bible. S- certain books, they do a better job than others, but there's a section of their intro that I thought was was pretty cool too. It says, the teacher provides some meditation on life and on the lives of those who have gone before him. The backdrop to this book is an implied story, the story of empire and what it means to rule and to be ruled by powerful kings. This profound consideration of life helps the reader to learn from previous influential figures, from their beneficial and disastrous decisions and pursuits. One of the most important words used to describe life in Ecclesiastes is hebel. It's used 38 times. While this Hebrew word is notoriously difficult to translate, it generally, its general meaning is breath or vapor. In Ecclesiastes, it implies that life is fleeting, like a breath, like a morning mist. It suggests that everything that happens lacks permanence and is ultimately provisional. After carefully examining nearly every aspect of life, the teacher concludes that nothing lasts. Nothing and no one can escape death, the great equalizer. Nevertheless, human beings are wired differently from other creatures, for God has placed eternity in our minds. So the best person can do in this life is to remember the Creator, hold Him in high regard, and keep His commandments. So while my original summary of this book was a little more hopeless, I think that the message that we're supposed to take away from Ecclesiastes is just that. Um, I'll move ahead into verse 9 because that's what they just referred to in um, chapter 3, verse 11. ESV header is the God-given task. It says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And I'll stop there because this is an extremely dense paragraph. It starts kind of sounding a little bit like the uh, hopeless message that I was referring to before. What gain has the worker from his toil? What do you really get? You go to work all day. You come home, you're exhausted, and what gain have you made from it other than um, 
currency, right? Some something you can spend here on Earth uh, that you cannot take with you into the afterlife. What gained have you really um, from that toil? And the writer says, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with, almost sort of disregarding that there might be any value to work at all. This is just, this is toil. This is something that God has given us to occupy ourselves while we are here, but he has made everything beautiful in its time. The problem is we do not know when that beauty comes. We do not know what is to be made beautiful in what time, which is fascinating to me. I'm trying to tie this together in a way that I can theologically make sense of while I don't necessarily imagine that the entirety of time is written, I do think that God created beautiful things that we as human beings may not be fully able to perceive in the way that we need to perceive them or the way that we should perceive them and appreciate them. It is a, it's, a, it's a separating notion in the Bible often that man and beast are different, right? That the human beings and, and cattle that, um, you know, the creeping things that those animals do not have this notion of eternity in their hearts. Now that's another argument for another time, I think. And there's a little bit of scripture to back up the idea that the afterlife will probably include our furry friends, but the um, distinguishing factor is that we dwell on it to me, that human beings dwell on this eternity, that we have this nagging notion that this can't simply be it. There are very few people that I've met in my life, even those that are staunchly atheist, even those that are totally certain that there is no God, that they would never ever uh, even fathom the idea of an afterlife, there's very few people that are comfortable with the notion of death being the end. I think this is why even those that fall away from Christianity find their way into some form of spirituality or faith that allows them to see themselves into eternity because of this desire that uh, and this knowledge of eternity that God has put in our hearts. Does that mean that um, we know what happens? No, it's, it's, it's this yearning. It's this longing. We're not certain of anything. We can't be. We can't possibly be. But I know very, very few people in my life uh, that, that have said, when I die, I'm dead. I'm warm food. That's it. And isn't that great? I know very few people who, th- who think that way. And if they do, you know, I guess if you can find peace in that, I'm thrilled for you. But that, to me, feeds this sense of, of, of hopelessness and meaninglessness to the life that we're leading here. If we're simply here to toil and to die, then what are we even doing here? What's the point? I've been going through a period of a lot of change in my personal life. Um, A lot of things have been going on that have made me reconsider 
what I wanted, uh, what I thought I wanted, um, have made me rethink a lot of the preconceived notions that I had about where I would be in the future, where I would go in the future. And this is not afterlife future. This is, you know, a decade or two from now future. But when I feel these these times of uncertainty, when I feel these times of of turmoil, I don't necessarily immediately think God will figure this out for me. It's really hard for me to surrender the control of what's happening in my life over to a God that, to be completely frank, I cannot be certain exists. I still pray every day. I think that it can be so hard for us as human beings, especially in a world where we are hyper-fixated on public persona, we are hyper-fixated on hands-on control, uh, that we can't necessarily resign ourselves to the fact that there is a time to be born and a time to die. We want to be able to customize our life, uh, like we customize a profile on a social media page. Um, We can ornament ourselves, but we cannot fundamentally customize what happens in our lives. We will all almost certainly have someone that we know die uh, prematurely. We will all almost certainly uh, fall in love with someone that we probably shouldn't. Um, We will all almost certainly uh, experience new life in the world, and and it will give us hope. It will make us feel so... um, so joyous. You see this new life and you see uh, potential. You see birth. You know, this is the flip side of what the other thing that we're all going to share in this life is. Eventually, our hearts in this world will stop. Our brains will stop working. For some people, they get to lead really long lives. For other people, they, they don't. So it can be very hard, uh, after my digression, it can be very hard to to resign yourself a bit to the fact that these things will happen and you want to fight them. And my takeaway from Ecclesiastes 3, at least up until verse 8, is not that I am going to simply lay back and let life roll over me and let whatever happens to me happen to me and simply accept that sometimes I will be torn and sometimes I will be sewed back together. But the knowledge of this time for all things is what brings me comfort. Because while there is a moment in my life where I will suffer immensely or I will feel pain or I will cry or I will mourn, there will also be times where I will experience this incredible life-giving joy. And to know that this is all part of the scope of life that we've been gifted with, that to me is a great comfort. It cannot take away the sadness that you feel when something bad happens, but it can give you the perspective of eternity. It can give you the perspective that God has placed, the the consciousness of yourself, that yes, I am experiencing something terrible, but it has not all been terrible. There have been very good times. And I think we would do well to think of those things uh, in times where we are refraining from embracing. 
uh, in times when we are weeping and mourning and not laughing and dancing. The, um, the last part of this that I want to read is um, verse 14 through 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So this uh, translation here is a bit funky because at the end of that which has been driven away, there's a footnote here that says, the Hebrew says what has been pursued, which translationally makes a little more sense given what is has been, what is to be has been, um, God seeking what has been pursued. So that makes a bit more sense to me. But this, this passage after connecting so immensely with um, the other parts of this, I stood back from it a little bit because, again, I have a lot of trouble believing that um, there is nothing that we can add to God. Uh, I think quite the opposite. I think that we can add so much to God by rejoicing in the times of joy and by mourning in the times of mourning in the times of sad events that happen in our lives, God feels that pain with us. And in the times of joy where we are having a first dance at a wedding or watching a kid graduate from from college, in those times of joy, it pleases God for us to feel that joy. And when God is pleased, joy increases. God is this overarching power in our lives that has the ability to turn the volume up on everything that we feel. I think I'm digressing a little bit too much on this. But ultimately, I felt so connected to this passage in the context of what we've all seen in the last two years happen. Two years, who am I kidding? The last two decades happen in Western society, in our culture, in America, in political things and, and, and cultural things, and, um, and even in communities, in, in tighter-knit communities, we have seen a turnover. We have seen the best and the worst of each other in recent years. And I've heard that argued that, well, these, these um, tragedies, be they ecological or communal or otherwise, all of these things are feeding up to what we, we are to understand is the apocalypse. But this is that's beside what I'm talking about here. Um, in experiencing all these massive ups and these downs, uh, and the downs have been really down at times, but the ups have been pretty up. In experiencing all these, we are given more perspective to this life that we've been given. And each bad thing that happens to me, I learn from it. Each good thing that happens to me, I should probably learn more from it. But I'm spending so much time laughing that uh, and, and rejoicing that um, it's harder to be. It's almost harder to be introspective in those times where where things are so good. But we're all, I think, experiencing um, a lot of this in our lives recently. 
as much as we see tragedy, we see beauty. Uh, Every time something terrible happens that I read about it in the news or I hear about it on, on Twitter or whatever, I can go outside and I can see the most beautiful sunset and I can see these incredible creatures that we are sharing this planet with. Um, I can look into the eyes of someone that I love and, and just feel so embraced and so warmed. And all of that has a place. All of that has a time in this world. I think I have less to say about this than I might've expected. I, I've been stumbling a little bit over my words and I'm not sure if it's just the place that I'm in mentally or uh, if it's the fact that it's 100 degrees here in Portland, Oregon. Yesterday it was 115. Uh, I think the day before that it was also 115. So all of our brains have been a little bit cooked. So if this was at all incoherent or confusing or even boring, um, I just want to say sincerely thank you for listening. Um, I feel so blessed to have the opportunity to do this show and to hear from people every week about how it has impacted them or how they feel about it. Um, You know, I've even had people reach out and say, I don't think you got this right. That's okay. I, I love conversation like that. We need to study the Bible together more often. We need to be reading this stuff more often so we can have these kinds of conversations. We can learn from them. So, so again, thank you so much. Um, there's a couple of things I want to read uh, before the end of the episode here. I found a really nice book. There is a, a collection of prayers called Pray with the Heart, Manual of Prayer by Father Slavko Barbaric which is a very cool name. Probably pronouncing it wrong, but sorry. I, I found a prayer in this book called The Prayer for Love. It has a passage from Matthew at the beginning. It says, you have heard the commandment, You're sh- you shall love your countrymen, but hate your enemy. My command to you is love your enemies, pray for your persecutors. This will prove that you are sons of your heavenly father. And then the prayer goes like this. Jesus, you called me to love. I admit to you that my love is weak. Cure me of the wounds resulting from the lack of love and of all the sins that prevent me from loving you above all. Oh my God, cure my heart of the painful heritage I brought to this world because of the sins of the world and of my parents. Cure my soul of all the burdens which have accumulated in me through my childhood and youth. Let the fire of love, kindled by the grace of healing, destroy every darkness and completely melt the ice of evil in me. Enable me to love completely, that I may love all men with my whole heart, even those who have insulted me. So often, Jesus, I have felt the inability of my love to forgive insults. Forgive my envy and jealousy that I use to burden myself and others with. Heal my faith in you too. Let the grace of trust remove every mistrust and every source of fear. Cure me of the godlessness in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds. Jesus, heal love in my family too, so that it may be as it was in yours. 
heal love between spouses, between children and parents, between the sick and the healthy. Jesus, heal love for all men throughout the world. So the poem that I'll be reading today is from Kathleen Norris from her book, Little Girls in Church. The poem is called Perennials. I betrayed them all, Columbine and Daisy, Iris, Daylily, even the rain barrel that spoke to me in a dream. I inherited this garden and missed my grandmother in her big sun hat. My inexperienced hands don't know what to hope for. Still flowers come, yellow, pink, and blue. Preoccupied, I let them go until weeds produce spikes and seeds around them. I never used the rain barrel. Water froze in the bottom. Too late, I set it on its side. Now Lily of the Valley comes with its shy bloom. Choked by a weed I don't know the name of. One day, too late, I'll weed around them and pull some lilies by mistake. Next year, we'll all be back, struggling. Just look at these flowers. I've done nothing to deserve, and still, they won't abandon me. Thanks, everybody. To everything, turn, 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 there is a season. Turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. To everything turn, 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 there is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to build up, a time to break down, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together to everything. Turn, 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 there is a season. Turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven.